What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Can you go into a little bit of detail? You could probably talk for hours about it. Kind of the differences between white toxic masculinity. Latinx and Black uh, toxic uh, masculinity? That's an interesting question, Danny. And I don't want to, uh, how do I want to say it? I don't, I, I don't want to categorize. I think if we just look at toxic masculinity altogether, I mean, depending on how it shows up, toxic masculinity might show up in, in white supremacy culture, thinking about it as dominance, uh, thinking about uh, the callousness that happens towards women, the superiority feeling. If you're thinking about white supremacy culture, and how that is playing out. We're watching toxic masculinity play out with the confirmation hearings of Judge Brown and seeing that play out and how power structures are placed, you know, have been placed around masculinity and then actually highlighted and actually subscribed to. And we're seeing this toxic masculinity within our country and particularly white supremacist uh, toxic masculinity. We saw January 6th of 21 and how, how that played out and this feeling of privilege, like, you know, these things that are taking away from being taken away from me when we've seen 400 years of laws, Jim Crow laws, voter rights oppression, all the things that are playing out that are hampering our communities from actually thriving. So that's what we're seeing. If we were to look at the other context and, you know, again, dominance, superiority, callous feelings towards women uh, and how that shows up in Black and Latinx communities. For sure. I hate moving that conversation that way because we don't spend enough time talking about what it looks like to be healthy outside of the toxic, outside of the hyper-masculine. See me, I grew up in a mixed household. My father's Italian and my, and my mother's Puerto Rican. Both cultures show a very hyper-toxic masculinity. At some point, is toxic masculinity learned or has it evolved into something that's like almost genetic at this stage? I believe in nature nurture, but I think when it comes to masculinity, gender is a, a construct that we have construed to actually, you know, place us into categories. And so we are then socialized into what masculine and feminine are to be and how we act. You know, I always have this, this conversation with friends. I was like, if we said that masculine was feminine and feminine was masculine, right? From the day that we were born in reverse, how would we act? We tend to think I was born a man, I was born a, a woman, but we labeled that, right? And then we associated behaviors that actually went along with that. There's a counter argument to that, right? For instance, you and I both you're, you know, grew up uh, where there was a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom, right? And so now we're having this conversation around same-sex bathroom. But we were taught to go to the boy's bathroom. We were taught to go to the girl's bathroom and whatever. But if we had seen no signs, people would just have been socialized to go to the bathroom. Yeah, and so thinking about it that way. And so how we view masculinity and how we view femininity is based on learned behavior. We learned that. Our parents socialized that. Our friends socialized that. And so rearranging those constructs, and that's why we're having a hard time right now with the conversation around transgender, right? Because we haven't been socialized. Right. And we have the, um, 
the big story in the sports world mm -hmm. about the swimmer. And, you know, it comes out as like, you know, are some people trying to have a structured argument or is this just coming from a place of discomfort and a, a nurtured history of hatred? There's a lot going on there. It's a very loaded question. But for me, I just know just from my personal upbringing, I've used words, uh, you know, if you fall down, it was, you know, stop being such a pussy. I'm just using the words that growing up. No, 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 please. I mean, look, hey, we're going to have fun on this conversation. No, I remember as a child, and I was an older, probably 11, 12, and I was playing baseball out in the front yard uh, with a lot of friends in the yard and got hit in the eye. And I remember like running to my father crying like, oh, my God, I got my eye hit. Oh, my God. And then I realized, oh, shit, like I'm fucking 12 years old. And you're almost afraid. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, too, is that uh, you taught at Loyola in New Orleans. College is a very toxic, masculine environment. It can be. It can be in context. Yes, it can be. I don't, I don't want to say it for all, but, you know, maybe times have changed a little bit now. But, you know, uh, I graduated high school in 2006. They were still uh, very fratty, let's say. How many arguments did you get into daily? Like in terms of, you know, constructive arguments that you had with people almost defending toxic masculinity, just do maybe due to lack of information or like you said, the nurture that they came up with. That's an interesting thing because I'm having more conversations. I don't get into arguments. I don't like to argue. I'm a very peaceful person. However, I feel like argument just has such a negative connotation to it. It does. And don't get me wrong, Danny. I mean, I, I can go with the best of them, right? And I, <laughs> I, I can get emotional. I can, I can throw the, you know, the doctor out the window and, 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 be, and just be fully emotional in what I'm trying to say. I, I try not to do that. We're all human. Yeah. But what I'm seeing now, interesting in BIPOC communities. Can you explain what that is? Uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Got it. And so I'm seeing more and more men who are subscribing to, I, I don't, to more, I'll say it, a conservative masculinity, you know, that, that has some toxic residue with it. I could be in that range from time to time. Yeah. And, and, and this conservative masculinity, I, like, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago and this gentleman was upset that Judge Brown had been nominated by President Biden. And this is a black man having a conversation. Right. And he was upset. He was like, well, I kind of wish that he hadn't, you know, said he was going to name a black woman. You know, what about having a, an, another black man on, on the court? And I'm like, why do black women in, in this context get all of the accolades, all of the acknowledgement and their trials and tribulations are highlighted more than black men or, or, or Latinx men? And I was like, oh, and then I started seeing that there is this movement of what they're considering themselves like everyday men, right? The, the rank and file men who feel like their narrative, they're not the elitist right? They're the rank and file Latinx black men who are like, look, our plight is just as strong as those of Latinx and black women. But, you know, we're not getting the media coverage. We're not getting this. Why are these women getting this? And they, there's a there's a little dismay and discomfort with them around that. They feel like they're getting jumped in line. Yeah, exactly. And so and many, you know, many of them I've talked to subscribe to a, a Trumpist ideal uh, around masculinity, this in your face and whether you believe he's a good president or a good person or not, that's not here for me to argue. But believing in, you know, say what's on your mind, do not care about the isms that are happening that are happening in the world, and just really to be all about this individual instead of the collective nature. So that's been interesting to have these conversations. And I'm more so in the learning phase of this because as a researcher, as a podcast, as a person who invests in BIPOC communities and BIPOC you know, entrepreneurs, those being men, 
I want to know like who I'm in bed with, you know, particularly for my money, you know? And so how does that feel? That's always important. Money isn't everything, but it sure is important. Exactly. And so thinking about who I'm investing in and who I'm working with, I want to at least know so we can have some conversations around are our values aligned? And they don't always have to be aligned, but I, I need to know so we can at least have a conversation so we can learn, hopefully learn from each other. I think as people, we've come a long way in terms of like being able to have like, you know, somewhat of a civilized conversation nowadays, especially just because the podcast world is blown up and you're seeing people that would probably have never crossed paths in real life having conversations. And uh, I think that's very important for me, though. It's like even when I started going to uh, therapy myself around two years ago, you don't realize how much toxicity you do walk around with you know, thinking that the stereotypical male-female relationship is supposed to be I am provider, man, caveman, almost uh, aspect of thinking. I pay for this, so I should be treated this way. When I grew up, my grandmother didn't work. My grandfather was a real estate uh, investor, you know, a carpenter, amongst many things. You know, he would work all day, come home, she would cook and clean. That's what it was. So, as I got older, I kind of thought that that was the societal norm, that one day I'll get a job, I'll come home, she'll stay home and take care of the kids. And then, you know, as people, I work primarily through the internet, seeing people and their relationships with their mothers and stuff, I started to see it differently in different households. And they were predominantly white households, you know? So it was just like, for me, I said, oh, is this just because my mom's Puerto Rican? Like, I, I literally had this conversation with myself is like, are we dated? Are we old school or are we toxic? That is so interesting because I listened to my mother talk about being from the old school. What does that mean? Like you, you guys just got treated like shit? Right. That's the interesting thing. And let me tell a little story here, if you don't mind. I find myself in relationships with women and thinking about how my father showed up for my mother. Right. And I was telling a story the other day about my fiance and I, or my ex-fiance, wonderful, amazing woman, Shauna Gentry. I always want to give a wonderful shout out to her and the, and the growth that she allowed me to be a, to do as a man. But I remember early in our relationship when things would go south and I would get mad or we would have a fight, I would sleep on the couch. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. I would sleep on the couch. And I remember she made me mad for some reason. And, and it was, it was something small, something, you know, honestly, Dan, it was something stupid, right? Usually is. Yeah, usually it is. And I hadn't taken responsibility for my emotions at that time. I own my emotions. No one else can make me feel anything. And I remember sleeping on the couch for three days. And after the third day, she came down, we were about to, you know, closing down for the night. And she was, are you coming to bed? It's been three days. And I was like, I'm still not talking to you. I don't, I'm, I'm mad with you. And she was like, this is pretty silly. She was like, I'm your partner. Yes, you might be mad at me. I might have made you mad, but it doesn't mean that you can't not be in this relationship with me. And that was old school. That was this unhealthy masculinity happening in the relationship. And I had to take a moment. I'm like, well, what am I missing here by sleeping on this couch? Well, I'm not having sex, right? I might be mad, but I still want to have sex. And what are we really getting out of the relationship if I'm sleeping on the couch and you're sleeping upstairs and we really haven't talked about what happened? It becomes like uh, almost like uh, something that you brush over because it's just a norm to you. Like I've seen my dad sleep on the couch many times. Yeah. Yeah. What is that game? I don't know. Nothing really. Because it just became something worse. And then I adopt that behavior because I saw my dad do it. Not to blame him. It's just something that in terms of like, oh, like you get mad at your wife. 
and you go sleep on the couch. And then you're a grump. We, we, we actually call my dad the GOTC, the grouch on the couch. We've called him that uh, many of times for, for maybe for like the last 20 years, we've called him that. But no, I agree with you. It's, and, and the other thing I, I didn't want to get too far away from was uh, conservative masculinity. I'm somebody that's still learning every day too. As much as I've removed myself from toxic masculinity, it's still there. I have like a little bit of like a halo around me, you know, that's still there. It's, it's thin, it's getting thinner, but it's still there. Listen, you're winning national titles at a very young age, right? Is there a sort of pressure that comes after that? Did you ever have any brushes with like, you know, being nervous or anxiety, like while you were beginning to surf or was that something that kind of happened a little later in life? I mean, throughout my, and this, this, you line me up very well with this question because this will explain why I got into mental health quite well. Throughout my junior career, from I'd say 14 to 20, I was quite successful. I was kind of this big fish, small pond in the Australia region. I was kind of in the top, let's call it two or three juniors from the age of like 10 in my age division up until I was 20. For me, when it came to like there was ups and downs for sure. Like I took losses quite hard. I remember as a kid crying almost every time I lost until I was probably about 16 or 17. That's just the love of, of winning though. You know what I'm saying? Deep down, it fucks with you when you're a kid. Losing sucks when you're a kid. You kind of uh, have to learn how now. to lose. Yeah, it sucks now. But like you, get, you learn how to lose. You know what I mean? My dad said to me a lot when I was a kid, like you got to learn how to lose before you learn how to win because you're going to lose a hell of a lot more than you're going to win, especially in a sport like mine in an individual sport. Yeah. There's 95 losers every event and one winner. Like I haven't won an event in years, to be honest. So it's like, you got to learn how to lose. But when it came to my mental health and this idea of anxiety and stuff, there was like little bits throughout my junior career, but I was on this trajectory. And I tell this story in my mental health workshops that for me, when I was a junior, I used to base my self-worth and my overall well-being on my achievements and my successes in my surf comp. If you're looking at it like a bit of a wavelength and roller coaster, I was hitting these peaks of good well-being quite often. And then I progressed from the junior to the international tour when I was about 20, 21, and well, actually like 19, 20. And I went from this big fish, small pond to small fish, big pond. And I went, not slid down the rankings, but I went to the international qualifying tour and went from top couple in Australia to sort of rank between 50 and 100 in the world, which looking back, is something to be quite proud of, but oh, when wildly you're a insane. There's so many people in the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and but when you're a top junior and you kind of go onto that next tour with high hopes and you slide down to there, my mental health was quite affected. And because I was basing my self worth and my personal value on how I achieved, that sort of wavelength of like hitting this high well being got a lot more infrequent. Yeah. I started to struggle a little bit with my identity. I felt a bit of shame, like being around people at my local community when I wasn't succeeding as often. And then I went and spoke to my sports psychologist about how I was feeling and what was going on. And he's like, man, it's so common to think like that. So many people aren't communicated a different way to think than to base their self-worth and their overall well-being on their achievements and their successes. And he challenged me. And he said, I want you to think like this. I want you to take this forward in your life and it's going to change the way you think. And he said to me this, he said, I want you to base your life on how well you live to your values. And that was this light bulb moment that completely changed my life. And that sent me on this quest of being curious as to ways to one, discover my values 
and really hone in on that. And I went on this sort of journey of reading a lot of self-development books, listening to a lot of incredible authors and podcasts, and just being very curious as to ways to improve my performance For sure. as an athlete through the mental side. And yeah, since then, it's just completely changed my outlook on the world, completely changed my outlook on who I am as a person and where I can go in life and how happy I can be by not basing my life worth on that. And yeah, I think a lot of listeners would probably resonate a lot with that. And then, you know, the thing is too, it's like, I feel like with men, it's like, we kind of have to, we're only as good as like our last accomplishment. Sometimes we create this thing in our head, especially in like creative head spaces and, you know, especially in athletics, you know, it's, are we better than you or not? That's just what it is. So it's like, oh, this guy's better than me. So then we deal with, Mm. you know, we, we all have ego, we all have pride, we all have things that we deal with. We're trying to juggle that at the same time. I played like high school sports. The the farthest I would ever got was college, but like American football. And then it's like, you know, but a lot of times you're often, that's a team sport. Individually, you're comparing yourself to another individual straight up. You know, it's like this actual person, you know, and then that starts being jealous. Then am I good enough? A lot of self-worth issues, I imagine, when it comes to individual sports. Definitely. Yeah, and I think it's just this lack of understanding of who you are as a person rather than who you are as a product of your result. And I think we all have the ability to change that mindset. And so often we realize that the things that fulfill us the most aren't our achievements anyway. And the more that we can notice that and hone in on that and discover what our values are, the way I describe it is like, do you want to sort of feel happiness and well-being only when you achieve something or do you want to feel it every single day? And that's kind of what I now talk about in my workshops, in my podcast, and it's kind of this base of my existence now is just trying to live by values every single day. That's one thing where I think it's okay if you don't play sports and you don't compete in athletics, that's fine. But I think I learned a lot of life lessons through athletics. And I think that it's important, again, for men, I think, if you are in sports, like American football taught me a lot about teamwork, you know, who could be a leader, how to pick somebody else up if they've had a bad game. You know, it teaches you how to win and it teaches you how to lose, like we talked about before. I think just sports are a great metaphor for life, especially when you're young and growing up. Like you said, you used to cry. I've been guilty of crying after, after a football game or a basketball game. You know, like I just wanted to win that bad. It's one of those things where, as you get older, you start to learn to be like a sportsman, right? This sportsmanship. Mm. But what I wanted to ask you though, is like, say you go out, right? And you said 95 people lose, one person wins. And you mentioned a, a sports psychologist. Can you explain to me just in like, like brief, I'm sure there's so much, obviously it's a, a total science. What's the approach in a sports psychologist office? Oh, it just really depends what I go there to him with. So it's like just a place... For one to come with performance and speak about, or I mean, for instance, I'd go and talk to him and be like, fire out. I'm like finding it very hard to be a bit focused before my events. And he gives me like a mindfulness, different little technique or skill. And then sometimes I'll have a session with him and just kind of talk to him about what's going on in my life, like family life and stuff. A lot of it definitely comes from the psychology point of view, as in like the performance side of it. So I'll go to him and be like, I'm really struggling once I get to the quarterfinals to lift my performance. And we'll, and he'll be like, all right, what's holding us back? And then we'll sort of go through a process and be like, it seems like we'll look back through my scores and then we'll look through data and be like, oh, well, you're generally not lifting your scores by the time you get to the quarterfinals. 
the scores are kind of staying pretty stagnant. Maybe we need to throw a bit more risk in your surfing in here. Like how are you going to be able to let go to do that and just sort of talk me through strategies. But then on top of that, I come back to him with this mindset thing where I said like, oh, I'm really struggling because I'm basing myself around my achievements and just like challenging me. He'll be like, why do you feel like that? And then I'll be like, oh, it's because I think I'm trying, like I feel nervous to go to the beach and talk to my friends after because I feel this shame that I'm not achieving what I should be. And then that's kind of what opened up this next question for him to be like, well, why are you basing your self-worth around your achievements? And I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. And he'll be like, your identity shouldn't be around this. So it's just like process and just talking. And I feel like once we've how we're feeling sometimes, it just, whether it be to a psychologist or a friend, it just gives us an opportunity to have a second opinion, but also Sometimes when you verbalize how you're feeling, it makes you realize how silly some of the self-beliefs and the self-talk we have is. I've said that so many times on this show, Cooper. It's outrageous. (laughs) I talk to myself all the time because I need to verbalize how ridiculous this thought in my brain is. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And then like, I'll get to a point, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a little ridiculous. It's a freeing practice. It really is. Mm. For me, 100%. So like with self-talk, if you ask yourself, one, is it true? Generally, you're not going to get past the is it true step. But if it is true and you go, is it helpful? Very rarely is like criticism and negative self-talk going to get past both of those stages. And if it does, then yeah, sweet. Then you go and work on it. But if it doesn't, in my mind, you can just drop it to the side. Would you ever do reality TV again? I would do it in like, I like unscripted stuff. Well, I would do it if I was like a little more involved in like hosting, maybe production. production. I love hosting or like some kind of like dating show with friends or something or, or just something. Yeah. I'm a little more involved in. Cause I realize people like I am my personality. So like, even though I'm starting to do some comedy acting and I like that, I'm kind of very like anti five-year plans like I feel like they're kind of restrictive I'm very into like general goals where I'm like I like entertaining like putting myself out there I like creating I kind of yeah. see where the industry pushes me and like reality tv was a form of entertainment that I tried and like honestly it was great for my career <laughs> yeah <laughs> but see, it like, wasn't great for my mental health see that's the thing like so I'm sure all of that stuff is they're telling you to be yourself kind of with like not having the full capability and full range of being yourself if they choose, like, I feel like my first two seasons, they really kind of showed sides of who I am. Like they wanted right. me, they were like, show me playing tennis and all this stuff. And then we had a COVID season that was like bonkers where like yeah. we all were fighting and people are turning on each other and it got like not fun. And I'm also, I'm Sicilian. Like I'm fucking, I don't turn forget up. shit. I yeah. don't forget shit. That be, like they're kind of like, you're going to fight and they're like, okay, move on. And I'm like, no, what that person just did, like, they need wild. to be, yeah, like that's not okay. Like I take things very personally and I'm sensitive because yeah. I'm like a loyal friend where like I would never do that to you. So if someone does that to me, I'm like, oh, so you, you hate me. You're my enemy now. Yeah, no, um, if you, it, yeah, that's what it is. is. If you were like wrong me once, like I like put witchcraft on you. <laughs> yes. Like, I, like, I could tell some dude was like really trying to fuck with me. And I was like, Mm, absolutely, absolutely not. But reality TV is like you have to fight and move on, fight and move on, fight yeah, and move on. See, I can't and do ev- that. And you have to be fake. Like you have to like act like you're friends with everyone. Even if someone like tried to like make you look horrible on TV, you have to be like, 
Oh, that's just Sally. She's so silly. And I'm like, no, fuck Sally. Yeah, no. Sally fucking sucks. I'll say it. Put that camera over here. Sally fucking sucks ass. But you could say Sally sucks and then they cut it to make it look like you're just being a bitch. Yeah, Sally sucks (laughs) because she shit in my bed, but they'll cut that part out. That's that's (laughs) what it is. She fucking Amber herded me. (laughs) So yeah, it's but also it's entertainment to be messy. You're supposed to make mistakes. Yeah, of course. Be ugly. And ultimately, when I was single and in my 20s, it was really fun. But now it's like I'm married. You feel <laughs> like a transition. I definitely feel a transition in that, like, when you have a partner in life, it does kind of like calm you down in a way of like you have a base, you have support. Right. I travel a lot, though, and I have a lot of my own crazy shit. But now I have to consider another person, which is like difficult. But now I feel like I also get bored with things. So like three years doing reality. Oh, that's TV that's was- good for him. <laughs> I was thinking about reality TV. Yeah, no, like, you like, no, like we're married, but like I also get bored <laughs> get with bored. things. So I was like, oh, that's if I want to switch it up a little. Yeah. But also he's an older man. So like he doesn't have that much time left. So we'll right. be fine. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, he's uh, he's in the golden era of his life. Yeah. So 46. Look at that. Doesn't look a day over 40. No. He looks like just a young guy whose hair went like. He's what? like a, a watch model in a Just for Men ad. 100%. I've seen like so <laughs> many like citizen fucking watch ads with him and it. I feel like. His fucking cheekbones. I like being with men who are hotter than me though. Like that's yeah, my. No, I have to do that too. If, if I'm the hottest person in this relationship, that's my ego is going to go crazy. <laughs> It's, it's just true. Be, you start treating them like shit. You're just like, oh, it's like, did you even fucking work out today? You're just a piece you of shit. Me grapes. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I need to be with somebody that's hotter than me. So when I go out with my fiance, people look at her and I'm like, okay, remember, you have to do stuff right to keep her because there's everybody else out here. <laughs> it keeps what, you what in am mind. I hanging out with your fiance? Oh my God, you're so right. Yeah. I need to be with dudes who are hotter because, yeah, it helps. It helps my ego, though, to be like, yeah, I got him with that, my yeah, personality. That yeah, no, it flips around. <laughs> it's like, I'm funny, bitch. I'm just like, yeah, but my credit sucks. But I'm funny. <laughs> you know, that's why. It's like, I really feel like uh, being able to make women laugh is a big in initially. Yeah. But funny. Yeah runs out at some point. <laughs> That's the thing. Then they start finding you annoying at a certain point. Yeah, you find yourself like, annoying at a certain point. Yeah, You're it's like, like I can't do fuck this. Up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, funny good. is like the perfect in. But it is important that I feel like you find someone who like you find them funny in like the simplest ways, like just how they interact and like their little thoughts. Cause yeah, like someone trying to be funny gets old real quick. I yeah. also you know Life can be a show. All the yeah, time. like New York dating, even like some of these dudes, any woman out there are boring as shit. And you think the date went great. And then you realize, oh, no, I was great. I deserve an Emmy for what I just did. But then six months in, you're like, I'm tired. I can't yeah. keep up the charm and the wit. I've run out of stories. I'm out. <laughs> and I think I think it takes a lot of courage to get out of relationships because like people will say like back in the day, it's like, I had courage and I stayed in my relationship. Sometimes that works. Whatever. I would tell you this though. It doesn't. Because (laughs) if there's no kids involved, right? Do not stay in a relationship that is just not working because you're just going to get older. You're going to get sadder and you're going to get fatter 
mm-hmm. and you're going to get angrier and you're going to mm-hmm. fucking learn to hate somebody that, and you're like, you know what? He has a good job. So I'll stay around here. People really need to understand that it's okay to be selfish. Oh, I love a breakup. I love a divorce. I love a breakup of an engagement. I live think your beautiful. life. Live, live your, your life. fucking life. Because if you're the one that's left with that person, who cares what other people think? You're the yeah. one that has to spend every day with them. And I do think that, yeah, there's so many people to meet and just like settling is because you're afraid of being alone. They say like the happiest people in the world are like in a happy relationship. Next is single people. And the least happy people are people in unhappy relationships. I think I saw that on TikTok. Yeah. And then <laughs> TikTok's the new Bible. That's just what it yeah. is. And, yeah. I, and that's why like, I really just want people to stress that like people know my story. People know I was engaged before and that I uh, wasn't and I'm engaged again. Like people know my life because I'm an idiot and put it on the internet. But like, I'm not going to live my life for anybody else if I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I I can't do that. And your relationship, like they're a mirror to you and like their thoughts become your thoughts. And like their conversation is what you're surrounding yourself with. And your happiness is dependent upon the energy around you. So like, it's sometimes you just need to get out of it. Yeah. And it's like, when my fiance comes home, like you said, there's a feeling with dudes. It's like, all right, even every day, I'm like, all right, I, I did the right thing. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. fuck this up yet. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hanging in there. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm doing the best that I can. When you were having like anxiety in, in high school, college, summer house, I just love the name summer house, <laughs> summer house. And you know, you were having like performance anxiety, but you do stand up right mm-hmm. now. So mm-hmm. you're doing stand up. Do you still have performance anxiety when you perform? Great question. So the first time I did stand up was at Caroline's in front of 300 people. I did 10 minutes. Love it. It's like a podcast show. And my friend was like, do 10 minutes of stand up up top. And I remember before I went on stage, I was like, this could be my tennis. Like I could walk on stage and freeze, be all in my head, be like worried about everything. But I got on stage and I felt like I was just like talking to a friend at brunch. And I think I just realized in that moment, like I... Tennis was something that like I love to do, but I actually didn't love competing. And my, I always felt like I was crazy. I was fucked up, but it was actually just my body telling me like, you don't like this anymore. Right. And it was like, it and was, you were like kind of doing it for other people kind of. Oh my God. I had so much pressure from like coaches. My parents put so much money into my tennis that they didn't always have. Right. Like for a 14 year old, like I was sent to Florida. Like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders with it. So I think with, with stand-up, not only am I the only one who's involved in my stand-up, but when I get off the stage, I don't win or lose. And I have, because I am like greener in the industry, I don't have it attached to my ego where right. I'm like, I'm this comedian. I'm like, I go on stage, I try my best, I walk off and I'm proud of myself. And that's all I wanted for my tennis that I didn't have. Mm. So for stand-up, it's become this like, just There's fun, no creative expression for me. Yeah. And also like, I don't have that much fear and I'm not holding it too close to my ego. So I actually like, don't really get nervous. The only time I get nervous is if like, it's an audition for something or like, uh, I know someone's watching and I'll be like nervous for like the first five seconds and then I'll kind of calm down. But also deep down, I like, I like a little nerves. I like the high of it all, but I don't have this sick, horrible anxiety in my stomach that I used to have when I was, Another sports reference, I say it's like surfing. 
when you find the right thing, when you find the right wave, you just go. Oh yeah. But when you're like fucking with the wrong waves, like it's going to be a nightmare and shit's going to be hard for you. Another good one too. It's like when you hit a home run in baseball, it feels like you didn't even hit the ball. It just goes. Exactly. You know? So I, I would argue that I was, I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to do now. Love it. Even though I do love to play tennis and I'm just because you're really good at something doesn't always mean it's what you're meant to do. Or maybe for that time, it's what I was meant to do. But at this time in my life, I found like what makes me happy. When you're writing, right? How often are you writing? Are you writing all the time or do you have like an hour that like, I'm just going to do this hour for a year. I'm going to do that. Or do you just kind of like not have like a like set thing? I'm writing all the time. It's kind of overwhelming. I'm, I'm trying. I think I need to adjust because I'm still in a period of just like keep writing new jokes, fine tune stuff. And comedy is fractured now. So there used to be a time where you really would work towards building that hour. Yeah. But like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to want an hour. People rarely even watch an hour. Netflix, they watch the first 20 minutes. Some people want half hours. Some people, it's like you're better off doing it on your own on social media. I'm trying to figure it out because the model has changed and we're in the midst of a massive change where I know people where their, their clip of one joke will get millions of views and their special that the clip is from gets 12,000 on YouTube at the most. Right. And so I don't want to become entirely a slave to the algorithm and short form. Yeah. If you weren't a comedian in like 1987, like it's not going to work. Yeah. And like the, the idea of like building a new hour than touring, I feel like that's where you get to a point where I could go to St. Louis for some shows and then a year later go to St. Louis and I'll have maybe 5% of the audience from the last show. Like I'm still building. So what's the, what's the point of building a new hour or an hour that's not as strong? I'm just trying to put on a great hour, hour, 15 minutes. I will do some new stuff. I'll do some old stuff. I'll fine tune. I want to make you enjoy being part of that process where some stuff won't crush or I'll go, Ooh, boy, that sucked. And as I grow, I'll get to a point where I'll go, okay, let's figure out maybe it's 30, maybe it's an hour. Let's do that somewhere and then consider it burnt. Yeah. I had one joke about R. Kelly that went kind of viral enough places that I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to do that joke anymore. And I do hope to eventually get to a point where I'm more purposeful, where I'm like, let me build this, burn it in some capacity and move on. But right now I kind of just have two and a half hours of stuff that I'm like, well, uh, if I put this on Instagram, does that mean it's burnt or do I want to wait until I do it here? And yeah, yeah, it's a lot. You're just tinkering shit all the time. You're tinkering shit. It gets better. And there's a part of me that gets nervous. Like, oh, are you going to see me? And like, you've heard this joke before. But again, it's like people who see me on TikTok, some of them aren't even old enough to get into comedy clubs. So why consider it burnt if it's on TikTok? There's, yeah, there's always like a new audience that'll catch it. There's so many fucking people, dude, with social media. But then there's a lot of, I would say that there's a lot of comedy that's watered down and kind of weak because we are constantly building. And we forget that like some of my best jokes have been told for five years and they, they got fine tuned in minute ways that now make them great. So figuring it out, I'm sure eventually I get to a place where I am more like, this is the hour, burn it. But right now I'm just like build good new chunks, good for you. jump around, be an artist. So like for you, do you have triggers that honestly take you all the way back 
see yourself defense like even like today like something like extremely small that will like throw you all the way back because i've always wondered that especially when i knew we were going to do this interview it's like tv is like riddled with that shit is entertainment something that you like have to worry about like what you go and watch especially with your post-traumatic stress a hundred percent like i watched the movie not okay the other day and just a little synopsis on the movie it was this girl who faked being in attacks in Paris and then came back, was a part of like the survivor group and then took part of these survivor stories and made it into like a media sensation. And I was so triggered by that movie because first of all, the people that fake this trauma and stuff, most of the time they're not okay with in their head and most of the time these people are like sociopaths how they showed this movie made me so i'm like gonna get like angry about it now but it's fine because people have to know but at the end it was like showing that the girl felt guilty for taking this person's story right it's like yeah i feel kind of bad about it it's like yeah of course you do normal people do feel bad if they did something like this, but the sociopath doesn't show this. Oh, no, 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 they don't. Yeah. And why would they show it in a movie? Because Zoe Dutch plays this character. That's the weird thing, too. It's like Hollywood will go out of their way to like kind of like give scumbags a platform, <laughs> you know, and, and by kind of like it's just like kind of it's just what they do. Well, and then Anna Delphi has a million followers. Yeah. Juliet, she was like the Russian like scam artist. But like literally, so Julia Gardner played me and Julia Gardner's played her. Uh, yeah, that's right. It just sucks to show that she played a victim. I have and you know, I'm very thankful for all of my followers and all the people that have supported me, but I have 34k. Anna Delvey has a million followers. Right. Do you think that our ser like our series actually did probably around like the same? You know, Dirty John had eighty seven million followers. But do you think that if John was alive, who would have more followers? John Meehan or Tara Newell? John Meehan. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because this country, I think the world in general, but definitely in America, we have this extremely sick obsession with with voyeurism. Yeah, where it's like. Oh, survivors are cool. That's great. But I want to get into the mind of the psychopath and like scientifically like follow these people around either digitally or literally these people go and see these people. It's like the craziest thing. It's like you see people that like kill their wives or kill their, their lovers. Right. And then you got women writing them love letters in prison. Oh, yeah. you know, it's insane to me that like there's people and it, it, it a lot of it comes back to like um, humans we are just so insecure and mentally unstable that you know it, it's being a sociopath it's like a, almost a normal walk of life at this point it is well like you know and you can't get to positions of power without kind of being a strong persona at times and you know sometimes a 
quality of like a narcissist is like charming and stuff. And that gets you to positions of power a lot of the times. And when these people are doing it from like the genuine of their hearts and stuff, they're going to be most likely, oh, like, well, this person seems like they're really, you know, for it. So I'm going to step back and let them arch you know yeah it's like you see real heroes but like sometimes like they're like the best heroes like the ones you never hear about oh yeah like there was a comedian i forgot what his name was but he lied about like being in the 9-11 like being in the towers okay i think that the movie not okay was kind of based off of that situation yeah and and then he went on stern Steve uh, Renizzi, I think is his name. And he lied about being in one of the towers. And then my mind goes, my, my cousin was killed in the World Trade Center attacks. Sorry. So, no, it's, it's okay. It was, it was mostly my mom and them were very close. And, you know, my mom still deals with that to this day. Every year she goes down there for the memorial and does the whole thing. I remember when I heard that story and I was like, this is like one of the most offensive things that I could ever hear. Like the fact that this person could ever work again is especially in entertainment was like wild to me. Yeah. I was like, dude, you lied about being in a tower for what? Because you're you're a sociopath. That's what a sociopath does. They say, Oh, like you want to just be that attached to people perishing, like, and then just like be able to like that's so strange to me. And then I remember almost like a couple of weeks ago. I kind of got into it with a friend of mine too about a story he told me a couple of years ago. And it was a story that like, even how you said when he was telling the stories about the cars and all that stuff, like it just didn't make sense to me. And it always like stood in the back of my brain, but like he was my friend. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but it also like turns out he was lying. And I was like, dude, you know, you went like two years lying to me about this story for two years. I was like, dude, I was like, how are we supposed to be like friends now? Yeah. You know, and it wasn't even that big of a deal. Like if you would have just told me the truth, like we, we would have been good. And it was very strange for me. And like even like you said with John, you see all of this stuff getting done and you survive. This is your story. You should be the main focus of all of this stuff. And I know like they probably go around and tell you that you're the main focus of this stuff, but it's the audience. They don't okay. Production doesn't tell you that you're the main focus. Do you know what production tells you? Production tells you, well, you know, we need everyone's stories because it's not just your story. You know, it's your mom's, it's Tanya's, it's this, that. But and I understand that they all have stories. But the reason why he isn't here today is because of me. And I have to hold on to that trauma and I have to live with that. And I am the only one that has to live with that. Listen, so in something like that, when you're competing, do you want to be looked at as an equal or is it something that, you know, because people are like, wow, like it's such an inspiration, right? So it's like, you know, this person has this condition it's like wow it's like such an inspiration but does a part of you just want to be respected as just i'm an athlete uh, i'm a performer i'm a performance athlete i'm out here doing this thing i'm controlling this horse right now uh, regardless <laughs> regardless of my condition or not so yeah. how, how do you do that so i i think amongst my peers and, uh, and amongst others of those in the disabled community 
I a hundred percent want to be seen as an equal. However, in comparison to able-bodied people, I want to be seen as disabled because I am. And I think, you know, disabled people, and obviously like, I'm not trying to like offend anyone. I feel like disabled people do want to be seen as equals. And I think that's great. And I think that's awesome. However, we're not, you know, we are physically handicapped. We cannot do some things that able-bodied people can. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I feel like people in the disabled community can get so disheartened about not being seen as equal because then they feel like there's something, there is something wrong with them, but like, that's not the case at all. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You just have to be physically handicapped. And I feel like if we, I feel like people in the disabled community wanting to be seen as equals, I feel like they're kind of trying to sugarcoat their condition, you know, Mm -hmm. but their condition does take a hit on their life. And there are some obstacles that we as disabled people have to jump over that able-bodied people just will never face in their life. So I think it's really important that, you know, amongst my peers in the disabled community, I am an equal, but against able-bodied peoples, I want my disability seen and I want it known. And if I need some sort of help thing or whatever, I would want it, you know, and I, and I, I'm not ashamed of that. And I feel like a lot of that comes from shame from having a disability, but I literally, I can't help what happened to me. You know, I have zero control. Why should I feel shame over something that I couldn't stop even if I wanted to? Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!